on Friday, lots of us saw the reenactment of Jesus' crucifixion in Saturday Market, and some of us played a part in it. It's a really moving and powerful spectacle, but most importantly, it's a reenactment of an actual historic event. Those things actually took place, but they mean absolutely nothing without the resurrection two days later on that first Sunday, uh, that first Easter Sunday. So could you turn with me to John chapter 20? Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord, and she told them that he'd said these things to her. So what's it all about? Why is it important? Perhaps we could just see it as a a great story. This chap, Jesus, he's the son of God. Various people didn't like him, so they crucified him. But he's the son of God, so he was raised from the dead. A happy ending to the story. The good guy gets killed, then raised back to life, goes to heaven, and everyone lives happily ever after. The end. Is that all there is to it? A nice story where everything turns out well for the hero? And we all go home and carry on living our lives as ex- exactly as we did before. I guess that's how a lot of non-believers think about it when they hear this narrative. Certainly, that's how I saw it before I came to faith myself. Everything works out in the end and Jesus springs back to life. But is there a bit more to it than that? Yes. Absolutely everything we believe depends on Jesus' death and resurrection. It's not just a happy ending to the story of Jesus' life. 
it validates Jesus's life. Everything Jesus said, everything Jesus taught, everything Jesus said about God the Father, everything Jesus claimed about himself, our forgiveness, it's all validated by the resurrection. And most of all, like Peter said before, his final words from the cross before he died, it is finished. These things are all confirmed by, by the resurrection. So let's read what Paul says about it. Could you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15? Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of, last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed. Now, if we look at the whole book of 1 Corinthians, there's an incredible amount of teaching there. Paul talks about how a church service should be ordered. He talks about how we mustn't push in when we have a fellowship meal at church. I'm looking at you, Thomas and Edward Ross. (laughs) He talks about how relations should be between husband and wife. And he talks about the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts. And he talks about love. But he saves the most important thing until last. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The cross and the resurrection are of first importance. Everything we believe depends on the cross and the resurrection. And that's why there's so much focus on them in in the outreach courses we do. Whether it's the Alpha course or the new course we've been working through, the cross and the resurrection are central to everything. I don't know about you, but if I'm ever talking about my faith with people who don't believe, they often seem to raise the same types of objections to Christianity. How could God have made the world in six days? What about dinosaurs? Where did fossils come from? How about the Big Bang? Women bishops, homosexuality. These are all interesting questions, and it's easy to find ourselves spending a lot of time discussing them. But they're not the most important things. This is the most important thing. Christ died for our sins. He was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Everything else is secondary to that. The resurrection means we can rest in the knowledge that we're saved. 
It proves there's no barrier between us and God. We're forgiven. We're accepted as children of God. It's far more than just a happy ending to the story. It, it proves that everything Jesus said and did on earth was right. Now, if this was all that the cross achieved, that would be amazing by itself. That Christ would show the incredible depths of his grace by emptying himself of his glory, coming to earth as an ordinary man and dying in our place for anything we ever did wrong. That alone should make us fall down to our knees and worship him forever. But incredibly, the resurrection means even more than this. It's the basis for our own future hope, which is the resurrection of our own bodies. Now, this might be a bit alarming if you're a fan of Renaissance painting. But our hope is not to sit on a cloud in a nighty playing a harp. <laughs> our hope is the resurrection of our physical bodies. So let's carry on reading 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, so from verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he's destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything is put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he's done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. So Christ is the first fruits of those to be raised from the dead. And who are the second fruits? We are. You don't mind me referring to you as fruits, do you? We're promised a resurrection ourselves, and not just a vague, ethereal, spiritual resurrection, but a completely real physical res resurrection, the same as Christ. After Jesus was resurrected, he spoke to the disciples. He touched the disciples. He ate with the disciples. He wasn't a ghost or some sort of spirit. He was a real, solid, physical resurrection. Christ was the first to be resurrected to a new type of life. And when he comes in, comes when he comes again, we will be resurrected as well. Now, this might be an obvious thing to point out, but being raised from the dead is a fairly unusual thing. Has anyone here been raised from the dead? No? Has anyone, has anyone here seen someone raised from the dead? 
you, you can fill in your own mother-in-law jokes if you like. But my, mine's in the congregation, so. <laughs> I haven't seen anyone raised from the dead, but I know of a few people who have. God does still do that sometimes. But still, resurrection is not an everyday thing any more than it was an everyday thing in first century Judea. In fact, back then they were probably more open to the idea of resurrection than people are nowadays because they'd have been familiar with it from the scriptures. In 1 Kings 17, Elijah raises a a woman's son from the dead. In 2 Kings 4, Elijah's disciple, Elisha, raised another woman's son from the dead by stretching himself out over the child. It's probably not a good idea these days. You'd have child protection people on you. Another one that's interesting is the book of Jonah. Some interpretations suggest that Jonah was actually dead in the belly of the big fish. Because in chapter 2 it tells us he prayed from deep in the realm of the dead. And of course, Jesus himself refers to Jonah when he talks about his own resurrection in Matthew 12. He says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And getting back to the New Testament, during the time the apostles spent with Jesus, they'd have become a little bit familiar with people coming back from the dead. Jesus brought back to life the widow's son at Nain. He brought Jairus' daughter back from the dead. And of course, the one we remember best is Lazarus, who Jesus raised back to life after he'd been dead for four days. So it wasn't an everyday thing, but the concept of coming back from the dead wasn't an especially weird one to people in Jesus' time, especially the apostles who'd seen him raising people. They weren't expecting Jesus himself to be killed and raised from the dead, no matter how many times he'd uh, hinted that it was going to happen. But raising people from the dead wasn't quite as strange an idea as it is to us now in modern sceptical times. But actually, Jesus' own resurrection wasn't the same as those other ones that had gone before. It was something very different, something completely new. When I first read the gospel, first read the gospels, one of the most puzzling things about the resurrection was that the people who saw Jesus didn't recognize him, at least not at first. On the road to Emmaus, Cleopas and his friends spent a long time talking scripture with the risen Lord, but they didn't recognize him until they arrived at their destination and Jesus broke bread with them. Now, that had never happened at Bible Book Group. We'd recognize him straight away. (laughs) At the end of John's Gospel, a man they didn't recognize tells the disciples to throw out their nets on the right side of the boat. And they've caught 153 large fish before Peter recognizes the man is Jesus. And when Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and found it empty, she saw Jesus wandering around outside the tomb and mistook him for the gardener. Now, that's an interesting little detail, isn't it? Wasn't Adam a gardener? And didn't Paul compare Christ with Adam in that one Corinthians passage we just read? For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Something about gardeners. Anyway, after the resurrection, the disciples didn't immediately recognize Jesus when he came to them. Why is that? Isn't it a bit strange? They spent two or three years traveling around with him, probably spending almost 24 hours a day with him. It, it probably sounds a bit odd to us now, 
But the way disciples would learn in those times would, they'd literally devote their lives to spending every moment with the teacher or rabbi, listening to their every word, learning not just what the teacher said, but also what he did. It was referred to as walking in the dust of the rabbi. So after three years of discipleship under Jesus, isn't it astonishing that they didn't immediately recognize him? Why is this? Well, the Bible does say that his identity was hidden from them in a couple of those stories. But I think there's also another answer. He was different. He was recognizable, but different as well. Now, all those other people in Scripture who came back from the dead before Jesus, when they came back, they were the same. They still had the same body as before. When Jonah was spat out alive by the giant fish, he would have still been short-sighted. When the widow's son at Nain was raised from the dead, he would have still had a Veruca. And when Lazarus was brought back to life, he would have still had hemorrhoids. I might be using a little bit of artistic license, but all of them still had the same ordinary body, which would die again in due course. But when Jesus was resurrected, he wasn't just brought back to life. He was resurrected in a new form, a new glorified body. It wasn't completely different. He was recognizable, but at the same time, his resurrection body wasn't the same. It's hard to say exactly how it was, but we know, for example, that he just appeared and disappeared at various times. But at the same time, he had a proper physical body that you could touch. He spoke to the disciples. He cooked for them and ate with them. It was a proper physical resurrection, but at the same time, his body was different somehow. He had a glorified body. Now, as Christ was the first fruits of the resurrection, so it'll be with our resurrection. We don't know exactly what our resurrection bodies will be like, but they will be recognizable and different at the same time. And they'll be better. They'll be imperishable, free from death and decay. Marie, you won't be short-sighted anymore. Anne, you won't have diabetes anymore. Carolyn, you won't have hemorrhoids anymore. <laughs> We're all tired of praying for Carolyn's hemorrhoids, aren't we? We, we can't predict exactly what they'll be like, but when the Lord returns, we have the hope of new, imperishable bodies. But, so is that everything about the resurrection? New resurrected bodies, glorified and free from pain and illness, or is there even more? Yes, there's even more. Because it's not just our bodies that will be resurrected. All of creation will be resurrected. Turn with me to Romans 8. And I'm reading from verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. 
for in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they've already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. All of creation is groaning in in anticipation for our resurrection. Creation has something to look forward to. Creation's liberation from bondage and decay is tied up with our own resurrection. The The whole world is going to be renewed. At the end of the book of Revelation, God doesn't say, I'll make all new things. He says, I will make all things new. Creation is going to be renewed and resurrected. So that's our hope for the future. Resurrected bodies, free from the corruption of sin and disease in a resurrected world. A world that Isaiah described, where the wolf lives with the lamb and the leopard lies down with the goat. A world where children can play near the snake's nest. A world where there's no harm or destruction, as the earth is filled with the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. And I'm sure we're all excited and looking forward to living in a world like that, with bodies like that. Especially Carolyn. But where does that leave us now? Do we just sit on our hands waiting for Christ to return? Do we take it easy, just relax until we've got our physical resurrection? Waiting for the resurrection of all creation? No, of course not. Because although we're waiting for Christ's return before we get our new bodies, some aspects of the resurrection have already begun. Although we're not yet physically resurrected... We are spiritually resurrected. Romans 6 tells us that since we've been united to Christ in baptism, we're to count ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. Our spiritual resurrection has already happened. We often use the expression born again when we're talking about being in Christ. And Jesus himself used that term when he told Nicodemus that it was only possible to see the kingdom of God if you're born again. But born again is not just a weird turn of phrase that Jesus used. It means you've been, you've died and been spiritually resurrected. But God hasn't given us a spiritual resurrection for no reason. Paul tells us in Ephesians that we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do God work, good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. At the end of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because that you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. We've all been created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And it's really important that we know what our role in Christ is, what our labor in the Lord should be. If you're not sure, do pray about it and speak to your home group leader or one of the other leaders. What it is will vary from person to person, but you'll never feel fulfilled unless you're functioning in your role in Christ. We've not been given a spiritual resurrection to just sit about waiting for the Lord to return. I started this morning by reading out what happened on that first Easter Sunday and asked if it was just a happy ending to a story. And hopefully you've uh, learned that it wasn't. It was something that had cosmic significance. When Christ was resurrected, it wasn't just happy ever after. Before he went to sit at the right hand of God, it was the start of the resurrection and renewal of all creation. 
The cross and the resurrection are the way we're righteous before God, the way we're acceptable to God. When Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, that seemed to be it for mankind. Barred from the garden, no access to the tree of life, everything seemed lost for good. But the cross and the resurrection mean we have an open gate to that garden. We can access the tree of life again. And it's the gate to a resurrection life for us. But we shouldn't stop at the gate. We need to go through the gate and live the resurrection life that's waiting for us there. About 10 years ago, when I'd only known known Jesus for a short time, the Lord gave me a picture and I shared it with the church back then. But I want to share it with you again because I feel it sums up what I've been talking about this morning. Imagine a goldfish swimming around a small goldfish bowl. Reasonably happy, but stuck in a bowl, just swimming round and round because it doesn't know there's anything else. Just round and round. Has anyone here ever owned a goldfish? Okay. Well, if you have, you'll know you have to clean them out from time to time. And it's an unpleasant, smelly job, but you have to do it, else the fish doesn't last very long. And when you clean out the goldfish bowl, you have to put the goldfish into something else, preferably something with water in. (laughs) And there's an interesting thing with goldfish. If you take a goldfish out of its tiny bowl of water and put it into something bigger, like a bath or a tank of water, it still carries on swimming round and round in a tiny circle, as though it had never left its tiny bowl, just round and round. So I'll leave you with a question. Are you still swimming round and round in a little circle, as though you're still trapped in that little bowl? The resurrection has freed you from that tiny bowl. Are you living the resurrection life you're called to? Are you still swimming round and round? Every day we have to remind ourselves that we are resurrected. When Peter ran to the tomb to look for the body of the risen Lord, he looked in and saw Jesus' burial clothes lying there. Jesus wasn't wearing those burial clothes anymore because he wasn't dead anymore. And we must make sure that we're not wearing our burial clothes. We're alive in Christ Jesus and we must live a life that reflects that. Um, And I'm going to close just by reading uh, Paul's words from Colossians chapter 3. Would the worship team like to come up? Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of his creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, by barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, 
clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you are called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and, and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen.